3: The Black Effect Presents features honest conversations and exclusive interviews, a space for artists, everyday people and listeners
4: to amplify, elevate and empower black voices with great conversations. Make sure to listen to the Black Effect Presents podcast on iHeartRadio, Apple
3: Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast.
6: Welcome to Money Making Conversation. I am your host, Rashawn McDonald. I say this every week on my show. It's time to stop reading other people's success stories and start writing your own. And people you hear talk about and gifts they talk about passion if you have a gift lead with your gift and don't let your age friend family or co stop you from planning or living your dreams my interviews are for you whether you're a consumer or everyday 40-hour week guy who works a job or a young lady a business owner because i give you access to celebrities ceos entrepreneurs and what i like to call industry decision makers my next guest is tracy mcmillan she's a relationship expert television writer and author whose credits include Mad Men, one of my favorite shows, Good Girls Revolt, Marvel's Runaways, I Love Anything That's Marvel-related, and United States of Tara, which is outstanding. She's the author of three books, a memoir, I Love You and I'm Leaving You Anyway, a novel, multiple listings, and a relationship book, Why You Are Not Married, dot, 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 yet. She's on the show because she's the host of OWN's popular Family of Fiance family or fiancé. Right there, you know there's a choice. Where the couples have to make a decision, family or fiancé. Please welcome to Money Making Conversations, Tracy McMillan. Hello. (laughs) Well, Tracy, you're a fantastic looking individual. You're charismatic. you. You command the screen. And you are a writer. I
7: am, first and foremost.
6: Talk about that. Talk about being that that producer, that creative sort, because when you write, you tend to be by yourself a lot, unless you're in the writer's That's room. True. That's yeah. true. So talk um, about that. So okay.
7: I started out in journalism. I worked in broadcast journalism for 16 years. I And you know, the, the thing about being a writer and starting in journalism, in particular broadcast is that you're not writing because you're feeling inspired. You're writing because there's a deadline and you need to get <laughs> hit your deadline. Right. End of story. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that was really great background for me because I'm not waiting for something to happen. I'm just doing it right? Um, as far as writing is concerned. Because, you know, procrastination is a really big part of writing potentially. And if you don't make yourself do it, it just doesn't happen.
6: Well, the, the point also is that you know, because you hear famous terms like writer's block, you know, yeah. terms about uh, creative direction. But when I read off your credits, and I, it's important that you understand why I read them all, because they are basically shows where I when I started my writing career, Steve Harvey, Me and the Boys, and then went over to Parenthood with Robert Townsend, Arsenio's Hall sitcom, uh Sister, Sister with the Twins, Tia and Tamara Mowry, and then Jamie Foxx show and the Parkers. All those were urban sitcoms. So I was kind of pigeonholed. You know, if I if I try to write a spec script, they say to try to get on a Jerry Seinfeld type show or home improvement type show. I had to write those type of specs. How did you get into the writer's game? And let's talk about the different uh, fields, opportunities you've been given as a writer, because you go from drama to sci fi to, uh, to a really interesting
7: platform of writing. Sometimes I feel very lucky. Like I'm the Tom Hanks of television writers. Like I just get to do all these different things. And I don't know how I got lucky that way, but I will tell you how I started. So I had, I knew one person in the business. It was a mom friend of mine. We had met on a blind mom play date. Mm-hmm. So this friend of mine said, oh, I met this mom. I think you'd like her. So we went out and our kids were like two. My kid's now 24. Mm-hmm. So we're, uh, we're talking and I'm like, so what are you about? You know, I'm, I'm living in Los Angeles. She's like, oh, I'm a television writer. I was like, oh, I've always secretly wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? Right. And she said, well, basically you have a protagonist and they have a problem. They get themselves up a tree. They try to solve their problem. They get themselves further up the tree. They try to solve the problem again, and they fall out of the tree. Right. And then <laughs> that's basically <laughs> the end of the episode. There's a little epilogue after that, mm. that's it. Right. And I went, oh, okay, that's good. Mm-hmm. So I went off, and I wrote two spec scripts without even knowing what I was doing. Uh-huh. This is in, like, the year 2000. Right. I wrote a Dharma and Greg and a um, Drew Carey. Absolutely. And two did, very popular sitcoms. Mm-hmm. And so I showed them to her and she said, wow, everyone thinks they can do my job, but you actually could. Now, in a perfect story, that would be it. I got a job. Mm-hmm. I didn't get a job. In fact, I went, okay, that's nice to know, but I'm like very busy being a mom and I didn't have the self-esteem. I had a lot of stuff I had to work on internally mm-hmm. before I was going to be able to say yes to that kind of career move mm-hmm. or that life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got busy with all that work, not even knowing that's what I was doing and the opportunity came around again in 2005. So five years later, I, I was going through a big, my the ending of my third marriage, mm-hmm. I was in a real soul searching moment and I decided to write something, a drama, a, a movie mm-hmm. to work my way through the process. And when I was done with it, I sent it to this woman. We weren't close because her career had taken Uh off. And um, but she was like, I know you can write. So I'll send it to my agent. If he likes it, he will call you. And if he doesn't, he won't. And eight months later, he called me. And that was the beginning. And it took another year after that to get my first job. But once I started and at that time I was 42. Mm -hmm. So I was like the wrong age, the wrong color, went to the wrong school, the wrong everything. But it did not matter there was still room for me. Well, you know, it's and really interesting. A that, big
6: lesson. Uh, I always tell people like, um, I found myself, my voice in my forties, you know, despite the oh. success I had, a, a, a success that people considered was incredible. I really didn't, um, I guess, have the confidence, uh, a glimpse of direction that I could do that. Yeah. And so the reason I bring that up, because a lot of people limit themselves when they hit a certain age. You know, yeah. they don't do it in their 20s or their 30s. They feel, oh, time is up. I can't do it. And yeah. what you and I are saying in our 40s, we found our voice. And we found yeah. our voice. Basically, our careers took off. Yeah. And they took off because we finally believed in each other. You know, I was still I was managing Steve Harvey at the time. And, and we was in L.A. And I was making some decisions, positive decisions. But again, I had written all these sitcoms, you know, We've done all these concerts, sold them out nationwide. But in the end, I had thrown myself into a world that I was successful. I didn't understand. And so Mm -hmm. with that, insecurities are there, even though you achieve success. So you overcame your insecurities. And so you walk into a writer's room, first time only. Talk about that experience. Well, my first
7: writer's room, everybody went around the table and they were introducing themselves and each they'd a lot of them had come from the west wing cuz the showrunner had run the west wing mm-hmm. so they're all incredibly smart very <laughs> established very successful tv yeah. writers and you know it's very common for those people to have gone to ivy league schools yes. specifically harvard mm-hmm. and so they each go around and there's 12 writers on the show mm-hmm. and literally the first 9 writers all say You know, I went to Harvard or whatever, and my dad's a doctor. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this was when I first realized that television writers disproportionately have dads who are doctors. So anyway, you get to me and I'm like, well, I went to the university of Utah and my dad's in federal prison <laughs> and it was like, Oh, okay. But there was a way in which that I was owning it. And right. that it was just like, I was like, all right. And from really, even before that, I had learned that the things that I thought were the most, um, not necessarily shameful, but the things that I thought I would be least understood for, Mm -hmm. which is my history as a foster child, my dad in prison, Mm -hmm. you know, all these things, my mom, a prostitute, Mm -hmm. like all these things turned out to be the things that Hollywood loved me for. Right. They could not get enough of my story (laughs) with my three husbands and everything that had gone on. So it's the other big lesson was just to lean into who you are because who you are is perfect. For whatever dream is on your heart.
6: Well, you know, I really, first of all, your honesty is what also is your blessing. OK, because a lot of people yeah. hide from their background, hide from them because they feel that may be damaging to the opportunity. And like right. I said, you know, if you working for IBM, if you working for uh, Google, it probably doesn't matter anymore now because everybody's like, be yourself, wear what you want to right. wear type attitude nowadays. But back then, when you're talking about trying to break into an industry, that's true. I, I've been in these writers rooms and you were in for a drama. That's to me. Sitcoms always had a lot of writers, dramas. And you say you was in a room with 12 people. That's a lot of that was the end of the the old era it
7: literally was the very end of the old era 2007 and then we had the writer's strike and from that point on a writer's room was like six people right
6: right and so so I was just letting everybody know there was a transition period because in sitcoms you need more writers because of the fact you're pitching jokes and you're pitching a faster moving process and so you so you need people not to burn out and not to be pitching the same jokes but in dramas it's really tied to the emotion of the writer and you can shape right. the moment and the scenes and all that now i'm a sitcom guy you're a drama person that's your first writer's <laughs> job then you get then you realize you can do this this is what i want to talk about people you are right. talking to tracy mcmillan she is the host of family of fiance which is on own network we're going to talk about that in a minute which is an amazing show but i often like on my show is say people say how did they get there how did she get that opportunity how does she overcome the odds she just told you you know you know, the premise is that she from you she graduated from Utah, her dad from prison went to prison, her mom was a prostitute, but she didn't limit that self, limit her opportunities. Foster child. And all those are negatives. How do you start sliding those negatives, Tracy, into a positive side of the box?
7: I think it's really about understanding and embracing that if this is your story, it's for good. And that everything is happening for you, not to you, you know? I mean, the fact of the matter is I had some amazing foster homes. Like I always say, um, there's one version of my life where I got born and then my mother gave me up at three months and I was abandoned and Mm -hmm. victimized, you know? Um, But there's another story where I got born, I took a look around and I said, I can do better than this. (laughs) And I got out of there and I started getting exposed to some different things at the age of three months. Right. So it's all about how you frame it as far as I'm concerned. Right. Uh, I see animation in your future, too, because
6: you just uh, have a, a really huge mind of animation and creativity. Wait, and what in my future? Animation. Animation. Oh, I, oh OK. I just
7: say yes to everything. I remember people used to say to me many years ago in TV uh, news, they'd be like, you know what? You should know Oprah. You should have your own show. I'm like, yeah, you know what? I probably should. Like, that sounds good. Right. I was not saying no to anything. I was just like, all right. Yeah, I'm down with that, even though. I think it's not about looking at the how you have to take your focus off the how and keep your focus on the what Right. and then raise your own vibration to where you're matching, whatever it is that you want. And I know that sounds kind of woo woo. The other thing I'll say is I kind of work harder than other people. (laughs) Like I get a tremendous amount of work done. I crank out the writing like there was a period of eight years where I wrote three books. I was on a whole bunch of TV shows. Right. Like it was, I mean, as a writer, and mm-hmm. then I ended up writing this piece that went viral mm-hmm. and it, it was on the Huffington post. Maybe it was the most read for almost three years. It just turned into this huge thing. And all it was was me sitting down to write my truth as though nobody was watching Right. And uh, I put it in the Huffington Post and the rest is history. And that's where this on-air career came from. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing is, is I'd gone to broadcast journalism school. I'd worked in TV news for mm-hmm. 16 years. Right. I knew what to do. I had just been saying no to on-camera my whole life because I was like, I don't know, I'm a Virgo. I like being behind the scenes. I'm kind of a weirdly... Um, internal i know i look like i'm an extrovert but actually i'm sort of bookish i just want to read and be back here and have nobody <laughs> pay attention to me um so there was a part of me that didn't want to do it but you know the god or the universe whatever what? you want to call it divine intelligence spirit it, whatever the plan is that that's gonna happen it doesn't really matter what you say right we know some you know some tracy when yeah. i
6: when i looked at you uh you know my one of my gifts is just perception. and I just recognize people when I, and I really could, I, I can basically say, I don't need to talk to you because I just know who you are, you know, based I, on my, and when I look at you, when I watch the shows, you have a Zen about you. And it's a, <laughs> it's a Zen that, you know, is like a sixties type Zen, which is a laid back, uh-huh. but very confident, but very relaxed personality, which means that yeah. if I have any defenses, you immediately relax them. Yeah. And so that when, I, when that was important to me to see that because mm-hmm. you're a relationship expert, how did yeah. you become a relationship expert? We talk about your life, we talk about mm-hmm. the writers, you talk about that story you did in Huffington Post, but a relationship yeah. expert, how did that happen?
7: Well, it happened because I made so many mistakes in my relationships, mm-hmm. and then I'm the kind of person who is going to take a mistake and go, okay. What did I do wrong here? Like, what do I need to learn? How am I here to up level? You know, right. mm-hmm. um, that's just my nature. Mm-hmm. So as I learned things, naturally, I would just start talking to people about them. I, I worked in newsrooms, as I said, for many years. Newsrooms are rooms with 60 people all having trouble in their relationships. Right. No, I'm just kidding. Fair, fair. <laughs> but you would naturally be in these conversations <laughs> where I'm like talking to the the reporters or the other writers about their love relationships when I'm supposed to be doing my real job. And they would be helped. They'd Mm -hmm. be like, wow, you're really helping me. And a lot of it was all the things that I was learning. Cause I say I'm the jailhouse lawyer of relationship experts. I had to do so much work on my own case. Now I can help you with yours. And the other thing about me is I'm not the person who got married once and has been married 30 years. I'm still working it out. And I think people can feel the Mm non-judgment and they relate to somebody who's still working on it, even though they've made a lot of mistakes as I have. And I don't carry shame around it. I carry forgiveness for myself, compassion for other people. I really think it's just like relationships are a spiritual path Mm -hmm. and that if you allow them to, they will grow you unlike any other aspect of your life. So that just became where I was releasing my gifts were that I could understand what was going on with people's relationships. And then I had all this sort of I'm a big reader and, um, you know, I teach myself a lot. I'm basically sort of a self-taught marriage and family therapist. Right. Now I always am in therapy, and like my current therapist, sometimes <laughs> he'll be like, "Wow, that's really good. Can I use that?" <laughs> You're funny. You're funny, I'm Tracy. Like, sure, yeah. have
6: whatever you want. <laughs> uh, let me, Tracy. I, you know, I, I managed Steve Harvey, and we released the book "Act Like a Lady, Think Like a Man." It sold three million copies, and again, and yeah. you know, people threw him in that box of relationship expert. And yeah, they did. And mm-hmm. then he immediately hear this. Well, hell, he can't keep up marriage going okay Mm -hmm. how can he tell me what's going on in my life and then of course your situation you know you've had three divorces in your life so that's a
7: negative but also is that that's a positive too correct i mean i always say you learn more from failure than you do from success Mm -hmm. if you're there for the lesson now the other thing is is that i've learned so Mm -hmm. i got married at 19 i got married at 32 and i got married at 40 Mm -hmm. i have not been married In 16 years, Mm -hmm. I learned my lesson, right? I stopped getting married. I stopped moving in with people now for the, that is just shifting now. So Mm -hmm. I've been very, um, rigorous with myself about mm-hmm. what I need to learn and not repeating the same mistakes. Now when we say and, shifting oh,
6: now. When you say we, when you say shifting now, what did you mean when you said shifting now? I,
7: I am in a relationship oh, and oh, okay. we live together. <laughs> yeah. And that's brand new. It's been like a month. Okay. <laughs> so
6: uh, what we got to do is uh, in the fall, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, to I'm gonna reach back. we are going to be my show. It's going <laughs> to be live. I'm still here. We're going to find <laughs> out. You know, every six, <laughs> I think, you know, so Tracy, you're going to be my six month interview. Six months, we're going to okay. check in and find out the relation. You're going to help me out. I'm going to help you out. Because I've been I've been blessed. I've been married 33 years. Nice. And, and you know, in that whole process, there hasn't been rosy along the way. And there have yeah. been near catastrophes along the way. But, yeah. you know, being that, that that is my hook, my claim to fame in a relationship, yeah. I've been able to hold it together. Now, your yep. claim to fame right now is on own. It's a show yeah. called Family or Fiance. I, yeah. I, I laugh a little bit because of the fact that uh, you know, I, you know, family does play a role. And let's, let me give everybody the premise of Family or Fiance. It's on own network, hosted by Tracy McMillan. One engaged couple, two families who object. Hear me again. Mm-hmm. One engaged couple, two families who object. Three days under one roof, and a wedding on the line. Will they earn their family's blessing? I'll be forced to choose family or fiance.
7: How did you get involved with
6: this project?
7: Well, I got a call. So I did Oprah's super soul Sunday, right? Mm -hmm. And that was a great experience. And then uh, probably three years, maybe more later, I got a call that own wanted to do this show called family or fiance. And I was like, okay. And would I come in and meet? And so I came in and I met and really from that first day, I really just felt like, wow, the specific things that I know about and I'm here to do, I can do those things here. Mm-hmm. And really our show is about healing families. It's about setting up couples for really the, the deep work right. of marriage. And, um, you know, People learn. I, it, it's in, it's an incredible show. Every episode gives me chills at least once because these couples are so courageous and these families are so courageous. And uh, all yeah, courageous you also see people who co- don't want to do the work. Now, Tracy, and, courageous
6: or outrageous. We can put the word outrageous in there, too, because some of the things. There's some outrageousness. Because You're some right. of them come <laughs> in with a, a, a set mind. You know, a set, this, a set attitude. That's what I kind of don't like. And, but here's the thing I like about the show, and this is what I love about you, and I'm, I'm so happy I'm interviewing you, It's your personality. Like I said, it's so disarming. And I mm-hmm. think it's important for this type of show because it's not a combative show. I'm just let no. you know. I'm going to just tell you guys. When you watch this show, um, she almost, I won't use the word disappears, but she kind of like goes into the fabric of the show. She sets everything up and everything. And so we allow ourselves to see the problem. We allow ourselves to see the couples work through the problems, and we allow ourselves to find out maybe they are the problem. And that's part of mm-hmm. what this show is about because we're not trying to point a finger. That's what I, that was my greatest takeaway of your show, Tracy, you know, yeah. which is a, which is a family of fiance, which is on own network, is that you're not here to be uh, you're wrong, you're right but to resolve issues that make this couple last a long time. And that's the purpose of getting married. You don't get married to get a divorce. You get married to, to you know, to deaf do us part. That is the premise of marriage.
7: So talk about, am I missing the, the points of, of, no. of, of, of what you're trying to do in the you show? Got it. And I think that's part of my approach to relationship coaching is that I already know from being a girlfriend, you know, being just BFFs with people Nobody can tell anybody anything. You know what I'm saying? No one ever changed their behavior in a relationship because their friend said, girl, you're going down the wrong path. That's not how it works. Mm -hmm. How it works is you allow people to come to their own conclusion. You give them the dignity of their own process and you just hold up the mirror and you hold a space. It's almost like parenting. You hold a space for this person who has decided to come on the show. So you know the willingness is there mm-hmm. at some level. Mm-hmm. And you let what is inside of them pull them across the finish line, pull them into the change, not me being sassy. You know what I'm saying? That get, I'm just a facilitator. The real healing is the couples and the families themselves. Well, you know, the interesting fun part, because I have to, I have to use the word
6: fun. It's entertainment. It's a social oh, experience. Yeah. Spirit, uh, yeah. you know that we get to see is that just to see the journey of black reality shows, Yes, you know, you know, and you know what I'm saying, child, it was one time, you know, you threw a glass, you cut somebody out, you punch them in the face and that's a black reality show. Uh-huh. You didn't talk before, you, <laughs> you know, Jerry Springer, Springer on black steroids. That's what our reality right. shows were. And so you, you being invited into this environment, did you have any, uh, any, uh, uh, questions about what type of, what, what type of, premise we're doing with this because you're not going to get involved.
7: I mean, I could tell from the first meeting with the producers and, you know, just what own the network is about Mm -hmm. what Oprah Mm -hmm. Winfrey is about. Mm -hmm. It's like, we were here for what is highest Mm -hmm. in people. I'm here for what's highest in me. I want the couples to be here for what's highest in themselves and each other and the families. So that's the space I'm holding. Um, that doesn't mean people aren't going to act outrageous at times. They will. That's how people are. Because mm-hmm. people are, you know, humans. They do that. But um, we're not sitting here. That's not the level that we're um, resting in. Mm-hmm. That's just a place people sometimes go. Mm-hmm. And but I, I'd say that our show, it people grow, people heal, and it's real. The look in their eyes when we take the family photo at the very end, (laughs) we do the blessing ceremony, then we go outside immediately and take the family photo. Mm -hmm. And the look that they give me is always, even if the relationship fell apart, Mm -hmm. even if things didn't get fully resolved, Mm -hmm. the look in their eyes, whether it's family or the couples, is thank you. And I always want to say, it's not me. I'm just a channel. I'm just here. You did the work. You know, it, 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 my background was stand up comedy. I started out in stand up comedy.
6: And when I look at you, I'm almost what, you know, because she's, Tracy McWilliams. she has a very popular uh, TEDx she did called The Person You Really Need to Marry. It's wildly, went wildly viral. And you can find it online. Yeah. Tracy McMillan, TEDx Talk, The Person You Really Need to Marry. And when and watching that, I felt like I was watching a monologue. I felt like I was watching without well, the jokes now. You know, you know this yeah. is, but it felt like I was being entertained and carried on a journey. That's what great comedians do, whether you're Dave Chappelle mm. or Steve Harvey or Chris Rock. They tell mm. a story and take you on a journey. And even talking t- to you now, I feel myself being caught up into the mystique, the, the aura of Tracy McMillan. <laughs> what is that, Tracy? Before we wrap up, what is that about you? you? You know it's real. You know it's real. Come on now. I don't know. Uh, you know what? My
7: dad would say it's the McMillan charm. <laughs> I've heard him say that. He's like, it's that McMillan charm. Not necessarily about me. He was probably talking about himself. Right. But you do have you do have an it. You do have an what? it factor, correct? I don't know. You know, one time, 25, 30 years ago, I right. was in New York and I was I, I was living in New York and I was looking for a, uh, an apartment and it was a roommate situation. And this girl, I'll never forget it. She said to me after like 10 minutes of visiting, she goes, you're a star. And I remember thinking, what is she talking about? You know, because that is not how I saw myself. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting that I remember that. And so I'm willing to be a star if it's I'm here to use whatever. Right. For the good. And if that's, you know, I feel like I know my purpose. And sometimes I say, you know what? I wasn't going to be on TV, but God gave me TV hair. And so you just have to surrender <laughs> TV smile, TV to whatever knows, it is boys, that on. you have and be like, all right, I'm here. TV Stand. So. you got a lot
6: going on there, Tracy McMillan. I want to say this about you. Uh, thank you for coming on the show. You Thanks are a star, me. you know. You do have the aura, you do have the it factor, and more importantly, the host of a hit show on, on called Family of Fiance. You're wonderful. Remember, every six months, we're going to do our check-in, Tracy. All right. right. Every six months, because <laughs> you're wonderful. Continue to write on those dramas and changing the game and actually changing the game of television. You are yeah. a, this is a positive word, you are a beast. And the key to your success is you said it i work hard and you outwork people and everybody that i've known who's a very top of their game star that's the same thing they say over and over you're not gonna outwork mm-hmm. me you can talk to kevin hart you're not gonna work Stephen a smith you're not gonna work Stephen Ho- steve harvey you're not gonna work any of these guys uh, denzel washington samuel jackson so hard work is always applied to longevity and you have it yeah. and congratulations okay Thank
7: you. See you soon. I appreciate
1: you. you. We will be right back with more money-making conversations with your host, Rashawn McDonald. It's finally here, the season
0: of celebration. And no matter how you celebrate with family and friends, whether you're preparing for Reyes Magos or Karamu, lighting the menorah, or going to Midnight Mass, Kohl's has just what you need to make those traditions special. Plus, you'll find gifts for all your loved ones. No matter how you celebrate, when you shop at Kohl's, you're right where you belong. So, this season, give with all your heart with great gifts from Kohl's or Kohl's.com.
5: What grows in the forest? Trees? Sure. Know what else grows in the forest? Our imagination. Our sense of wonder. And our family bonds grow, too. Because when we disconnect from this and connect with this, We reconnect with each other. The forest is closer than you think. Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Look through your children's eyes to see the true magic of a forest. It's a storybook world for them. You look and see a tree. They see the wrinkled face of a wizard with arms outstretched to the sky. They see treasure in pebbles.
1: You are now tuned into the Money-Making Conversations, Minute of Inspiration with Rashawn McDonald.
6: I recently interviewed retired NBA star Al Harrington. He is the CEO and founder of Harrington Wellness, employing over 100-plus individuals operating in California, Colorado, Michigan, Oklahoma, Oregon, and Washington. He's on the show to talk about the exclusivity of the cannabis industry and how he's achieved his vision of bringing representation and reform to an industry which has historically left the black community disenfranchised.
4: When I jumped in, it was not popular. You know, now every entertainer, athlete, everybody's making investments and, you know, trying to endorse products. You know, when I did this, you know, I was, I put my contract at risk. Um, I put my freedom at risk, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and we still do. I mean, it's still federally illegal. I had seen it help my grandmother. That's what just really inspired me.
6: If you want to listen to the full interview with Al Harrington, it's available on moneymakingconversation.com.
1: Welcome back to Money-Making Conversations with your host, Rashawn McDonald.
6: My next guest is Dr. Tabitha carr N D. She's the leading authority in the field of women's health and wellness. She's the founder of the vegan-based Good Girl Chocolate, a best-selling author after high school. Let's talk about all this. And continue to battle of high blood pressure and blood. We all know about in the black community or the minority community, high blood pressure is always out there. And sugar imbalances. Dr. Tabitha, Decided not only to focus on her diet and desire to contribute positive energy to the community, but through studies with the focus on women's health and wellness, she created she created Good Girl Chocolate to thrive at the intersection of science, simplicity, and flavor. Good Girl Chocolate has been featured in the Grammys gift giving suite and select Oscar nominee gift bags, and was a twenty twenty grant recipient of Beyonce's Beygood Foundation. Our, our interview is about. I'm following your dreams that leads to a healthy lifestyle and becoming a leading authority in the field of women's health and fitness. Please welcome to Money Making Conversation for the very first time. I feel like I've known her because we've had some technical glitches. Dr. Tabitha Carr N D, How are you doing? Good morning.
2: Good morning. I am fantastic. How are you doing?
6: Well, I'm doing good. Uh, you know, I've eaten some of your chocolate. So I was kind of, you know, one thing I've learned now when you eat something that good, you shouldn't like immediately go into introducing someone. So in between in between certain sentences, I was just getting that, that, that nice taste was just rushing through my mouth. And so I want to apologize to anybody going, Rashad doesn't sound like he normally sounds when he introduces people. Well, I was enjoying good girl chocolate. That was all in my mouth. It was all in my system. And I'm having a good time. I apologize. I apologize to everybody who's watching and to everybody who's listening. I have succumbed to good girl chocolate. And that's a good thing, by the way.
2: I love it. I love it. I love it. Hey, you're not the first one mm-hmm. and you are not the first one to taste good girl chocolate and absolutely loved it. I'm thrilled that you like it.
6: Well, I am. You know, you, uh, thank you for sending me something. This is another packaging that she sent me, but I was dining on this because the whole brownie batter and this is this is the sweetest item that you make right here. Correct.
2: It is. It is. I started out making 70% dark chocolate. And that's not your average grocery store dark chocolate because folks can claim dark chocolate and have mm-hmm. 60% sugar in it. Mm-hmm. So I have real 70% dark chocolate. And what I found is some people like a semi-sweet, some people like a really sweet. So I go from 70% all the way down to 34% cacao. So I can bless everyone
6: palate absolutely you know the whole thing about it when you put the word vegan in front of anything people tend to run off or tend to think it doesn't taste the same or it doesn't it's not going to taste as good and right now this is like this is a vegan based gluten-free dairy-free and soy-free talk Mm -hmm. about being able to deliver something i'm eating right now that tastes so very good but also overcoming the stigma that if you go vegan it will not taste as good
2: here's the thing I have been on a different diet. Like every single day of my life, I was 16 when I was put on my very first blood pressure pill and I was a woman size 20, 22. Mm -hmm. So I've been on the keto diet, the cabbage soup diet, raw plant-based pescatarian, everything you can think of. So I actually wanted to create a chocolate that would basically fit into everyone's healthy lifestyle. So what it actually is, is a plant based chocolate that supports all healthy lifestyles. You can be vegan. You can be paleo. You can be Whole30. It's soy free. It's gluten free for those who can't tolerate gluten or or um, celiacs. It's soy free. It's it's non-GMO. It's uh, made with organic ingredients. It's single origin, fair trade, and it's being to bar. So this is about really spreading this to Everyone, not
6: right. just vegans. Well, the thing about it is that uh, you look, I'm going to be honest with you. You know, when I talk about I'm a meat eater, I'm a guy who goes out there. I, I have fallen in with products like Beyond Meat. I love, I love, I enjoy my Beyond Meat burger. Now they've got Beyond Meat chicken, so I'm excited about trying that out. But then we talk about vegan and you talk mm-hmm. about vegetarian. So, you know, I really want to get a clarification because I ran into a friend of mine. And she went over to JR's Barbecue and she said, well, I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a vegetarian. So what is the difference between a vegan and a vegetarian? Or is there or is there a difference
2: there? There is a difference. And I and I first want to start off by saying I identify with being plant based. So a vegan is truly a person who supports animals. I mean, it's it's a movement. So they don't eat anything as it relates to animal products they don't wear anything as it to um, relates to animal uh, products they are true animal activists okay. um, they don't even consume honey. Um, because it's produced from bees, which I don't use honey in my product as well, because I want to make sure it still supports that vegan lifestyle. A vegetarian is a non-meat eater. However, they do consume things like cheese. They do consume things, um, like eggs, uh, but vegans will not consume dairy. They will not consume eggs. So there Mm -hmm. is a difference. And then there's a pescatarian, um, you know, and they <laughs> eat fish. So there's so many out there. But the good thing about Good Girl Chocolate is whichever one you fall in, whichever bucket you fall in, you can enjoy Good Girl Chocolate because it's 100% free of any animal products.
6: Well, you know, interesting thing about your brand, and I know we're talking about the Good Girl Chocolate brand right now, but you as a person have always been about uplifting individuals, especially empowering female. You did the book, I believe in 2017, with my girl, Kim Cole, actress, Fame of living single about uh, open your gifts G I F T S twenty two lessons on finding and embracing your personal power. We find so much that is so much in the forefront of conversation right personal power, uh, un- leading with your gifts, leading with your passions. What what is the book about? Why did you feel the need to do a book? And then you did a book with a did the book with a very very funny actress named Kim Coles, So I I want to know the basis of your whole structure of of empowering people. Why is it so important to empower? Because like you said, at the age of 16, you own blood pressure pills. So right there, that means that you are at a point in your life where you need to be empowered both physically, mentally. Uh, there had to be a, a understanding that it was all right. To, you, you were beautiful as you are. Nobody needed to tell you how you look to be special and things like that. So talk about the whole empowerment and embracing your personal personal power.
2: I tell you what, this is actually the book right here. I don't know if you can see it, but I can see it, girl. I can see it. Mm -hmm. And it was it was so important. And and Kim is a dear, dear friend um, of mine. And it was so important to write this chapter because I know there are women out there that are going through the same things that. I went through and the name of my, my chapter is about triumph. And the name of the chapter is, are you ready to free yourself? And let me just read you the first sentence. It says, I'm free. I'm finally free. That's two sentences, actually. Mm-hmm. Are you ready to free yourself and triumph from weight challenges, from hormone challenges, from fibroids, from cysts, from lack of energy, from blood pressure challenges, from blood sugar challenges? These are all the things that affected me. I remember that day. Day when I was at the doctor's office and she said that she was putting me on a blood pressure pill and I asked her, okay, why, you know, why do I have to take medicine? I'm 16. Right. And she said, so you don't have a stroke at the age of 30. And, you know, when I look back, you know, I, I, I come from the South. And we come from, you know, a family of just rich cooking, rich foods. Uh, You know, we cook with fat back and pork and bacon and things like that. And when I look back, there was an opportunity there to figure out why was a 16-year-old having blood pressure problems? Mm -hmm. You know, it couldn't be clogged arteries. You know, I wasn't old enough. Mm -hmm. But because things did not change by the time I was 30— I was on three different blood pressure pills. And when you are a large child, um, when you're getting teased about your weight, being almost 300 pounds, being on blood pressure pills, that affects you. And, and that that just carries on into your adulthood. Um, so the the self-doubt, the lack of confidence, all of that carried on into my adulthood. I majored in pre-med. I ended up getting a master's. Master's in health administration. But I did not go into the medical field because I I, I felt like a hypocrite. Mm-hmm. I felt like Someone, you know, I can't tell anyone how to eat and how to live. And here I am, 300 pounds. So right. I actually ended up working for a technology company for 11 years before I really started having panic attacks and hormone problems. And it was the hormone problems and being on a cycle for three months that really, really made me realize and say, okay, enough is enough. I have got to deal with this because I want kids mm-hmm. and my grand- my grandmother, my mother, my aunt, I had cousins all have hysterectomies before the age of 40. Wow. And they had kids, you know, mm-hmm. and so, of course, they just followed their doctor's words and, you know, telling them, okay, we need to have a hysterectomy. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want my options taken away from me. Absolutely, And that's why I said, okay, I need to go back to the roots. I need to go back to natural health. Mm-hmm. And within 30 days, because my doctor basically suggested to me surgery or more medication right. to fix my hormone problems, and within 30 days of natural health and researching it myself, um, I, I stopped the cycle and I ended up losing over 80 pounds. And that's when I actually went back to school to study naturopathy, because there are so many of uh, women in our community um, suffering from the estrogen dominance, suffering from the fibroids, the, the cysts, the blood pressure, the blood sugar. And, and I wanted to let women know through this book that there is hope. There's another way. Now, that doesn't mean that you can 100% get off all of your medication. Fortunately enough, I was able to, but mm-hmm. it took some work. Right. It took exercise. I mean, a complete lifestyle change for
6: me. So if somebody says, okay, a complete lifestyle change, and now how do we tie good girl chocolate into that? Because when people hear the word good girl chocolate, they hear sweets. They hear fat. They hear weight gain all those things. And so that's why I wanted people to hear your story. Because when we, when we go on these journeys, and I'm able to do on my show, Money Making Conversation, I like to be able to tie things together. And why there is a purpose behind the actual creation of this product. Now, let's talk about the evolution of Good Girl Chocolate from the conversation we just had about your journey of being a 16-year-old, nearly 300 pounds, being bullied, being ostracized, and then your family history with all your relatives, uh, nearing the age of forty, uh, and not, and you also wanting to have a normal life, talk about that, and then into good girl chocolate. And I think the journey of our conversation would have a certain motivational tone to it, and as well mm-hmm. as a product that we all should buy, or all consider buying.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, so like I said, I have been on a diet. Every single day of my life, a different diet every year of my life. And one year, over 10 years ago, I decided to go raw. And of course, when you're on a raw diet, you know, you don't eat meat unless you're going to eat it raw. Uh, you know, you don't eat uh, cheese and dairy and things right. like that. So it was a truly raw diet. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, you know, I need something sweet to eat, you know, to really <laughs> wash down all the raw food.
6: Uh, I'm telling eating. you, I'm telling you, it, it, those raw diets, they are good in theory, but you got to have something to get rid of that taste. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, you do. So I started making raw
2: chocolate. Mm-hmm. I mean, seriously, I would melt down cocoa butter at 112 degrees because when you dehydrate your food on a raw diet, you have to keep it at that 112 degree temperature. So it still um, is a raw food, but I would melt down my cocoa butter, you know, mix in my cocoa powders and, and <laughs> coconut oils. And I would use organic raw agave and all of this to mix up this chocolate. I brought bought equipment to mold the chocolate and <laughs> it just started from there. Right. And I kept this chocolate to myself for years my mom loved it and she was like you know what you need to spread this chocolate to the world let everyone know about this chocolate chocolate okay Mm -hmm. so back in 2017 i went to the texas women's conference and applied to present in front of qvc Uh and the food buyer loved the chocolate. Mm -hmm. And she said it was actually like the best chocolate um, or plant-based chocolate that she had ever tasted. And that was my confirmation that I'm onto something. Mm -hmm. I ended up quitting my my technology job (laughs) and started my own business. And by the time 2018 rolled around, I was online, I had my own packaging and I was selling good girl chocolate, but it's called good girl chocolate because you can eat it every single day and still say you've been good. So it's about clean Eating It doesn't have the hydrogenated oils in it. The sugar that I use is coconut sugar. It doesn't have table sugar in it. It's free from gluten. It's free from soy. It's single origin. It's fair trade. So the workers are treated equally and we make it ourselves. So it takes four days. That brownie batter bar that you're eating, mm-hmm. it takes four days to make that chocolate because we actually roast the beans ourselves and we put it into our Grinders and we grind the beans. We grind the coconut. Keep talking, girl. I enjoy this
6: chocolate. Keep talking, good girl. I enjoy this chocolate. Mm -hmm. Come on now. That's Mm -hmm. right, Mm -hmm.
2: and it is the best chocolate. Ever And let me tell you, if that one is too sweet for you, then I'll put you in the semi-sweet. I love being able to figure out what people like from the 70% dark to the 52% dark to the 34% dark mm-hmm. and just really enjoying chocolate. You know, we have one life to live and I believe in the 80-20 rule anyway. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you you, you <laughs> eat clean 80% of, of your, your, your life, but that 20% because we have. Birthdays, we have Christmases, we have Thanksgiving, Absolutely. and let me tell you, I get down during those days. Absolutely, uh, but chocolate—this this
6: is this, something Tabitha, clean. Doctor Tabitha, I um, just had gallbladder surfer- surgery. You know, my gallbladder removed. I'm over forty, of course. That's when you usually the symptoms of having a gallbladder issue. Now, me eating good girl chocolate should be a good thing, right?
2: So, let me tell you this. Mm-hmm. Everything and in, in moderation. And go. as a naturopathic doctor, I do have to tell you, um, when you do not have a gallbladder, it's harder for you to digest fats, mm-hmm. and that's why for all of my clients, I recommend a food enzyme Mm -hmm. that has lipase in it because Mm -hmm. lipase actually helps you digest fats. But everything, no matter what you're eating, whether it's the Beyond sausage or meat that Mm -hmm. we're talking about, you know, eat everything in moderation. Just because it's plant-based doesn't mean that you should be eating a whole wagon full of it. (laughs) A potato chip (laughs) is (laughs) plant-based, but you shouldn't eat the whole, however meat. A big bag
6: of them, right? Right, but and that's me. And that's I I'm one of those people. I eat out of control. Like when you said, Rashawn, you can eat this every day." I went, "Okay." But you need to get the whole story before you start just jumping into the wagon and, and having a party and destroying all the good things that can happen in your life by misinterpreting what you are trying to say in this interview or what anybody's ever trying to say. It's about moderation. Weight loss is about moderation. Uh, living That's a right. comfortable life is moderation. They always tell you, don't over drink. Don't over party. Don't ever overdo it. Don't over exercise. Can lead to knee injuries, pulled muscles. You know, people out there they want to become young in a day by going in the gym and trying to run a mile when they only should be walking a mile instead of running a mile. And so, <laughs> the whole the whole purpose of when I look at the whole platform of what you've done with Good Girl Chocolate is tied to good health and and a good healthy lifestyle with moderation and a product that allows you to. Eat. I never use the word healthy to, to, to and, and, and mislead people, but this is a uh, naturally sweetened. It is vegan uh, based and it's free of gluten, dairy, and soy, and it's made without GMOs. That's pretty good to me, Doctor.
2: Thank you. And I want to piggyback on what you just said. Don't use the term healthy. and 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 I don't. I don't say, "Oh, I have a healthy chocolate." What I do is I say. I have a chocolate that supports this lifestyle that's right. free of the gluten, the soy, you know, the dairy supporting the vegan, the paleo and the whole 30 lifestyle. And it's sweetened with coconut sugar, which right. is a lower glycemic sugar. And while we're at it, we also have sugar free. Um, one of the things that my my diabetics or my ketos told me, they said, hey, um, you know, Dr. T, We really want something free of sugar. I understand you have the coconut sugar in it, but we want something sugar-free. So we also have a sugar-free chocolate that has xylitol from Birch, which is the best of the best when it comes to alternative sweeteners for um the diabetic community and for the keto community
6: now you're based in oklahoma and uh yes. the good girl chocolate is based in oklahoma you just opened to a brick and mortar in the uh Penn square mall in oklahoma and now dr t let's talk about some good things that have happened that made you smile uh you know beyonce i won't say she came to your rescue but boy her brand really came in and Put some love on you, isn't it? Really, it's not really about the amount of money she gave you. It's the brand association. Don't you agree?
2: Absolutely. It, it's 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 just. And, and first of all, that that it just felt so good. I didn't receive an email or anything. It was posted on social media who the grant recipients were, <laughs> and I saw my chocolate. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you that I I I think I cried. I'm mm-hmm. I'm serious. Mm-hmm. I was crying mm-hmm. because it was just so I felt so much overwhelming joy mm-hmm. from seeing that and knowing that I'm, I'm on to something. I'm, I'm doing something right. You know, when I was invited to. um the the grammy's gifting suite you know they Mm -hmm. tasted it first and said hey i we really don't like healthy chocolate but your chocolate is awesome your energy is great we definitely want you here Mm -hmm. it's just been confirmation after confirmation and being the first permanently black owned business in my local mall Mm -hmm. oh man you i'm just I'm just full of joy. I'm I'm very 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 grateful, and I'm I'm just excited. I just celebrated a birthday too this past weekend. <laughs> We've been over open a week, uh-huh. so it, it was like the per- perfect birthday gift to me.
6: <laughs> well, let's let, let's go and talk about you know being the first of anything is it, it, is tied to pressure because you can't be the first to close. You know you're the first to open, so that means that you have to endure, uh, you know, internal mental. Uh, um, sometimes depression. You have to deal with uh, being in an environment that people can uh, surround you with positive people and also surround yourself with people who understand your dream. Talk about your network of people who support you and also who have enabled you to get to where you are today with Good Girl Chocolate.
2: You know, I tell you, I I would be remiss if I didn't say my parents first. Mm
7: -hmm. Uh,
2: When it comes to support, they are my number one supporters as a matter of fact right now it's so hard to find people to work right now and my parents who are retired have <laughs> stepped up and have been helping me in the store you know this past week keep things together mm-hmm. uh, but i i believe your network is very important you know there's that saying your your network is your net worth. But it really, really is about building relationships. Um, I am an Alpha Kappa Alpha woman. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have a network from my sorority sisters, you know, who came together and supported me my first, you know, week open. Uh Uh, You already know my my good friend, Kim Coles, you Uh know, she has definitely opened up some amazing, amazing doors for me. Uh But, It's really about relationships, you know? I I think your character and who you are is very important and people are going to see that. People are going to see that uniqueness about you. And I'm, I'm a believer, I believe in God, Um, God is first in my Mm -hmm, life. mm -hmm. And I've just been so blessed with people who love me, people who have embraced me, people who have helped me get to where I am today. I am truly grateful. I went through the Oklahoma City Thunder Accelerator program here Mm -hmm. in Oklahoma City, Mm -hmm. and I came out with my first investor. And it was that investor who helped me because I had to totally redo this store in in Penn Square Mall Mm -hmm. from drive. Ceilings to electrical to equipment that's that's fifteen thousand dollars a piece. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of that costs money, and I'm just excited. I'm excited about the growth, I'm excited about uh the the wholesale opportunities that are out there that have approached me. Um, it's just an exciting time. Um, I'm thinking about opening up uh for another investor fund here in the fall, and it's just it, it, it's truly about relationships, and I'm excited about sitting here with you, uh, <laughs> talking to you, and on your show. And I appreciate the opportunity, and thank you so much from the bottom of my heart.
6: Well, thank you for this good girl chocolate. First of all, let's go and be real. <clears throat> it's a, it's a selfish motivation here. You, know, you give me something good, I got to talk to you about how good it is. And it's really, uh, and I can't wait to get in this little, this little uh, bag of tricks right here. The little couple with those pecan nuts. I, this is going to be my favorite.
2: Let me tell you, that pecan fudge, I don't know if we can even let you dig on it. If you can, <laughs> dig in on it on the show. But that pecan fudge truffle that's in that pink box, Woo! that's probably going to be your favorite. Well, uh, because I, it's I know, but you know, I like,
6: you know, already told me Sean, you know, in morsels, in, uh, in moderation. So I'm working on this. I can't immediately bust open this little package here. Especially when you're just wrapping up surgery, but more importantly, just I wanted to tell your story. I just you know, and this, there's always a great story. There's always the, the product's fantastic. Let's let's move past that. But what made that product a reality? And the reality is uh, through t- personal triumph. A reality is trying to change not only your lives, but other people's lives through your empowerment. And it started with your with your book. It started when you were 16 years old. It started with you not accepting the fact that this is going to be your life and you didn't want it to be your life. It started through your education. It started through you realizing that the way you look was limiting your dreams and you had to change that. But more importantly, Dr. Carr... Your your product is amazing. Uh, don't let the word vegan run you away from this product. It is what it is, but it's uh it's it's for you. It tastes good. Everybody knows I'm a dessert nut. I am a foodie. When I say something is good, that you should stamp that as a reality. I do not allow people to come on my show and then you know eat their food and then go around the corner and spit it out. That's not how it works on money making conversation. This is fantastic and i will be dining on this this weekend thank you very much for coming on the show dr Carr.
2: thank you so much thank you so much for the opportunity i have enjoyed this time i love talking about health and wellness i love talking about good girl chocolate and i love to inspire and empower women
6: well you did it all in this interview i'd like to believe we hit all those touch we hit all those touch points okay
1: We will be right back with more money-making conversations with your host, Rashawn McDonald.
2: There's a monumental shift in power at work. Employees are speaking up. Turnover is rising. Salaries are increasing. Hiring is tough. And burnout is real. It's time
4: to unleash growth. It's time to transform your HR from powerless to powerful. Join ADP on February the 23rd. Reserve your spot now.
1: Go to gettheplan.adp.com to register for the Work Interrupted Summit.
5: Hi everyone, Al Roker here. As a guy with his own catchphrase, I appreciate that Smokey's only said, Only you can prevent wildfires.
3: But I'm filling in because there's a lot more to report. Like when there are parched or windy conditions out there, you gotta be extra careful with things like burning yard waste. After all, wildfires can start anywhere, even in your neck of the woods. Go to SmokeyBear.com to learn more about wildfire prevention. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. And we're live here outside the Perez family home, just waiting for the... And there they go. Almost on time this morning. Mom is coming out the front door strong with a double-arm kid carry. Looks like Dad has the bags. Daughter is bringing up the rear. Oh, but the diaper bag wasn't closed. Diapers and toys are everywhere.
5: Like making sure your kids are buckled correctly in the right seat for their age and size. Learn more at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat.
6: Visit NHTSA.gov
5: slash the right seat. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.
1: You are now tuned into the Money-Making Conversations, Minute of Inspiration with Rashawn McDonald.
6: I recently interviewed Gina Yassaray, a British comedian of Nigerian heritage. She is the co-creator, co-executive producer, writer, and actress on the hit CBS series, Bob Hart's Abashola. Gina is releasing her first book, A Memoir, Handed, which chronicles her odyssey to get to America and break into Hollywood.
4: I wrote the book. Originally, it started off as just on Instagram. There was a hashtag, Throwback Thursdays, where you yes. post old pictures. Mm-hmm. And I was posting old pictures and writing the story behind the picture. So I post a picture and write an elaborate post explaining the history behind the picture. And people were really interested in it saying, oh my God, your story is so good. Why don't you write a book? So I started keeping those. And I wanted to talk about my history because people don't seem to realize that the UK
6: started slavery. If you want to hear the full interview with Gina Yashare, it's available on moneymakingconversations.com.
1: Welcome back to Money-Making Conversations with your host, Rashawn McDonald.
6: Welcome to Money-Making Conversation. I am your host, Rashawn McDonald. I always tell people every week, you know, it's time to stop reading other people's success stories and start writing your own. People always talk about gifts and passions. If you have a gift, lead with your gift. And don't let your age, friends, family, or co-workers stop you from planning or living your dreams. The people I bring on Money Making Conversations are celebrities, CEOs, entrepreneurs, and people I like to call industry decision makers. My next guest is what I like to believe is truly an industry decision maker. His name is Kurt Mays. He is the CEO of Forgotten Harvest, one of Michigan's top nonprofit organizations and one of the nation's premier food rescue organizations. Forgotten Harvest was formed in 1990 to fight two problems. Hunger and waste. Forgotten Harvest rescued forty-one point five million pounds of food last year by collecting surplus prepared and perishable food from eight hundred sources, that include grocery stores, fruit and vegetable markets, restaurants, caterers, dairies, farmers, wholesale food distributors, hotel, wholesale food distributors, and other department-approved sources. This donated food which would otherwise go to waste, is delivered free of charge to more than 280 emergency food providers in the metro Detroit area. He's on the show to talk about the purpose, but also his purpose. Please welcome to Money Making Conversations, my man, Kurt Mays.
4: Thank you, sir. Well, Rashad McDonald, thank you for having me on the show. This is an honor. Hey, Kurt, I had to put you out there, man. You're changing lives, brother. Uh, Man, just trying every day to just do what we can to help, man. Well, you know,
6: Kurt, uh, when I interview individuals like you, because you're such forward thinkers and you're all about what you what you can do more, what you can do better. What does that start? I'm going to delve into you a little bit. What does that start for you? Who
4: initiated this type of behavior or thought process in your life? It, It comes from my home. It comes from my mom. It comes from the way I grew up. You know, my mother. My family are from Jamaica, mm-hmm. and uh, really started with like you know third world country poverty, yes, at sir. a different level. You mm-hmm. know, my mom didn't <clears throat> have her first pair of shoes until she actually um, had to go to school. Right. So you know, it's just kind of like having that family background of people that started so far away from their dreams and ambitions, and just taking those one day at a time steps towards like progress. It's something that I lived in, lived around my whole life, and realizing the the gift and the and the, and the blessing that I had to be, you know, in America, to, for them to make the sacrifices they did to actually, I was born here right. to be able to actually realize that the, every opportunity that I had was an extension of the dreams that they had for themselves. So it was always instilled in me to actually stay on the right path right. and be patient about um achieving goals because nothing comes, you know, overnight. So it really just came from home and how I was raised. Well, you know, that's
6: important because uh it it, it shapes your vision. Like I said, uh my service was really introduced when I was in uh, college at the University of Houston and I pledged Omega Psi Phi fraternity. And all fraternities and sororities are service-based organizations. If anybody doesn't know anything about that, that's what they really are. And that's what I really got into community service, uh, raising funds from local uh, community activist organizations, donating food. I mean, we should give away government cheese. We should give away water. All those things. And seeing how the people react. I remember, man, when when we loaded up that truck and was giving away that government cheese, man, it was a line around the block. Yeah. And, and so the need is real. And so
4: let's yeah. talk about that need, Kurt. Well, you know, it starts with a um, a moment where people have to realize that they can't do it on their own. And they got to actually figure out who they can trust in that moment of vulnerability to get what they need, but also try to walk, walk away with enough energy and time so they can actually work on the root cause, which is how do I make sure I, I, I don't. I don't have to deal with this again. And you know, in our lives, we'd be surprised how many times people fall into that one scenario where it's like I can't do it by myself. Whether it's a a corporation that's doing major layoffs, whether it's the government shutdown that we've seen, the pandemic, or just the regular cycles of our economy that are changing every day from local to global, right? So um, I see, we see um, in our work, uh, unfortunately the lines wrapped around the corner every day
5: mm-hmm. in multiple places. Mm-hmm.
4: So the, the the issue of human need is persistent, is constant. And unfortunately, it's more dynamic than just being able to put food in a place for people to get it. Uh, we really got to think, um, we got to really come together and think about the ways that we can help each other even before people ask. Um, so that we can help, you know, stem some of these gaps that people have that sometimes they They don't say anything until it's too bad. It's, it's worse than it should have been. Um, and um, if we can work together and, and be that safety net for each other, uh, we really can do a lot to reduce the pain that a lot of people are actually suffering through quietly. Well, let, let, let's talk about that, because
6: when you say that uh, people are wrapped around the building, you know, let's go back to 2020, when this country was yeah. shut down, restaurants couldn't even do any business. And so you get a lot of your food from these type of, what they say, prepared or perishable food. And one of the things is restaurant caterers, you know, farmers, wholesale and food distributors. Walk us through that moment right there in time where you had a system in place where you did business with and retrieving this type of food. Then when the country got set down, shut down in 2020 due to COVID, how did that dynamic change and how did you walk through the process in dealing with companies now who not even making money, but now you need the food that they're offering?
4: Yeah, so that's a good that's a good point. So let me just kind of level set a little bit on, on how the whole system is set up for us and how we kind of approached it. First, um, over the years, as we've uh, become more dynamic and, and have more capacity to serve our community, we actually, uh, Forgotten Harvest, for instance, at the time that the, that pandemic uh, went into play, our largest sources of food were coming from places like grocery stores, farmers, food manufacturers like Conagra and the, and the, and the places where the food getting in warehouse. Um, and we have a farm our, of our own. Mm-hmm. So when you think about the actual prepared foods, the stuff that's already cooked, uh, we actually specialize um, in that other stuff I just talked about. And then we have some select partners like certain restaurant groups and like the casinos as well. Uh, you know tiger stadium. Right. Uh when they when they didn't finish uh with all the hot dogs, we go get those. But because of the food safety uh uh parameters that we want to put in place, we didn't really deal with a lion's share of pear food. Yes, sir. now when now when when the restaurant shut down because of the pandemic, we do have the capacity to deal with that and we had to make that adjustment so that we could actually go get the stuff that was actually going to go to waste because the restaurants couldn't get it out to the community. So there was a small blip in time where we got a bunch of the restaurants rations and got that back out to the community. Right Now, our typical way of doing things, as I mentioned, is our trucks leave, our daily uh, uh, the daily picture of Forgotten Harvest our trucks leave um, our warehouse in uh, Metro Detroit every day. And they go out on routes to go pick up food from Uh, dedicated uh, grocery store partners. And then after they go ahead, about 12 to 15 of those grocery store partners, they then turn that food back around and drop it off at some of the community organizations, the churches, the senior centers throughout the community um, in order for those organizations to turn back around and then then redistribute it for folks in need in the community. At our home warehouse, while things are coming in from farmers and manufacturers and things like that, we have about 16,000 volunteers a year that help us with actually sorting through things making sure we separate the good for the bad right. but also break down things like the onions and tomatoes and corn into smaller bundles so that we're not just taking big galers or big boxes to the community and dropping them off we're actually dropping them off but they're also already kind of unitized mm-hmm. so people who walk through the line can actually get their portion for themselves mm-hmm. so it's kind of a dynamic operation going on on a daily basis as we walked into covid we had to realize a few things number one our distribution network was going to potentially be greatly affected because if you know how the actual emergency food uh, distribution system is set up throughout our communities, it's largely done by volunteers. You know, that church group that's actually giving out the food, that's probably, you know, grandma in the church, Ms. Johnson in the church that says, you know, this is something that's passionate for her and she wants to do that. Right. So she'll take two hours on her Wednesday to, to give away that free food that gets sourced for however that particular location does it. Um, there's a lot of situations like that. That's actually the, the, the safety net for our communities. And when COVID came in, that those were vulnerable populations yes, it was. With, with very little infrastructure for sustainability. And a lot of those folks weren't getting paid. So they were volunteer roles. So we knew that there was going to be some real instability in our distribution network. A lot of our volunteers, since the same 16,000 volunteers a year, we got some great corporate relationships. Mm-hmm. So our, our volunteers come in bundles of 30 to 50 at a time because we got corpor- corporations that are sending people to us on a daily basis. When corporations shut down and start actually sending people to work from home, changing the parameters around um, how volunteerism and just how people were going to be deployed into the community, we had to figure out what we're going to do about volunteers. But that's a core way of what we do. Forgotten Harvest distributes about 50 million pounds of food last year to our community and helped about a million people. Mm-hmm. We can't do that with the 80 staff, the 95 staff that we have. We need our volunteers. Right. So we also had to come up with a way to address that. In addition to all of that, in the working spaces that we have, we have some things that we had to consider like PPE, like the distance between um, how, how far people could be when we actually give away the food, what's the best ways to give away the food so that everybody is actually... Um, kept protected. And then when we're actually doing our side of the processing, how is our space going to be transformed? Mm -hmm. So in Mm -hmm. order to address these things, we did a couple things. The first thing we did is we came up a way to actually quickly distribute the food to the community with a system that we actually ran and controlled on our own, instead of actually depending on our typical system of of going to our community um, distribution partners. And that was brought about
6: because of COVID, right?
4: That that, That was- That was because of COVID. Now, we had already been kind of working on uh, a a model that we were actually, as a team, kind of testing on our own. We were kind of doing our own little R&D. Right. And it it turns out that that little thing that we were working on was the exact thing that we needed to do in order to address that particular hole, which was how do we actually put distribution mechanisms out there to get to the community, knowing that the whole distribution network that we had in place will probably shut down. And what we did for that was we, cut, we set up what we call our, our mobile pantry. Where right. we, we basically go and uh, de- deploy one of those 53-foot uh, refrigerated trucks into our community with volunteers, and it, and it serves as like that staging unit. We put all the, the stuff on the, uh, on the parking lot, um, on a pallet, and then we have rolling distributions with the community coming through um, in their cars, and we were able to put stuff in the trunks. Uh, we had to go from fishing with a net, so, to speak, to fishing with the hook again with volunteers and calling one at a time. Right. So, we put um, uh, partnerships in place with some of our community partners so we can get the volunteers and be specific about how we did that. But, we really, in the middle of all of that, really had to pause. And I had to, we, the team, had to really get serious about trying to get to every partner we could to get PPE. Well, so you know, we the thing about it, let, let me just China. say something
6: right quick, Kurt. Yeah. The whole process of what you're talking about, you know, is fear. You know COVID, because like I said, yeah. plus Michigan, the state of Michigan. I'm talking to Kurt Mays, he's the CEO of Forgotten Harvest. Uh, runs one of the Michigan's top nonprofit organizations where Premier Rescue. Food organization. This is a key in this conversation. Food that will be perishable, food that will be thrown away. He repurposes it and it gives it to people in need. And it's safe food that's being repurposed and delivered free of charge. That's what we're talking about. It not yeah. only happens there, but there are other organizations in the state of in the state of America, in this world that does that as well. But we're talking yeah. to Kurt Mays right here. And hey, Kurt, uh, one I wanted to talk slow down just a little bit because the, the ready-made food that you was getting from this restaurant played a role because right. that food went to certain individuals or certain groups. What happened there when you didn't have the ready-made food anymore to be given out to these certain groups or individuals that needed or was expecting it five days a week?
4: You know, we we relied on some of our resistant relationships. Uh, we were all, at that point, we realized that we had to change the way we looked at uh, bringing in our food supply. So our supply chain partnerships had to actually pivot on a dime. Right. So instead of just you know, a lot of the food came from the grocery store and grocery store shelves was clear. Mm-hmm. So what we're gonna do? Um, so we have these relationships with a lot of food producers and food manufacturers. So we started to actually approach some of our um, partners to buy the food, because we knew we needed to actually start getting out here and actually making sure that we were there. We were on the ground with food. So there was a portion of the time where I had to get approval from our board to be able to actually go into our cash reserves up to a million dollars. So that I could actually be able to purchase food, so that we could actually fill the gas we needed wow. to fill in case we couldn't get the food from the food manufacturers and at the same from the from the community the way we were getting it. And at the same time, we started actually putting the word out to people. You know what, man? I got to say, it's such a blessing. We never had to dip into that million dollars to buy the food. We right. did have to buy food, right. But we got food that was coming in from places that we didn't even expect. We have partners that actually stepped up to make sure that we were um, in place where we needed to be. We have a coalition of partners um, in the state of Michigan called the Food Bank Council of Michigan, which is seven organizations and we cover the entire state. We started putting our hands together and we went to the governor and we started speaking as one voice about the shortfalls that were coming to us based on what was going on. Um, The moves that FEMA did the moves to be able to get the boxes on the ground. A lot of that conversation actually started in Michigan and it proliferated throughout the rest of the country Mm -hmm. as as the way that everybody would actually get that solution in place. So the CARES Act program, some of the things that happened through FEMA ultimately was what actually uh, uh, stemmed the tide to be able to give all of us the food we needed. So the food boxes then forgotten harvest because we have all these relationships with other fresh food providers, also, made, also supplemented the food boxes with vegetables, fruits, um, lunches for the kids. We, in all, in all, we've given away an average of 70 pounds of food for every family that comes through our line. Wow.
6: You know, uh, when I listen to you talk, you're the CEO. OK, so that means there's a journey to become the CEO of Forgotten Harvest. How is that? Possible. How does that work? You know, when I, you know you're a service oriented young man. You've been honored by your alumni, your school, Michigan State University, You've been honored for other efforts within the community. How does Kurt Mays become the CEO of Forgotten Harvest?
4: And that's the main dollar question. I don't
6: even know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, You know, you already, you got, you, you show me your visionary. You show me that you, you're ready to pivot when, when, when confusion steps in place, you already had places. You already had an idea that, Hey, this is something we need to look at. COVID hits it. You already got the model. You put the model in place and then it yeah. moves you forward. And then you're able to create a one voice. You tell the council, look, notifying them that hey. There is a problem out there. I'm not saying we're going to get the money, but that means that you're a guy who foresees the problem with resolution. Yeah. That has been your personality, correct?
4: Yeah. Yeah, that's all That's all I can, you know, humbly I can say that's all fair, right? So, Uh um, but to answer your question, I got to actually go uh, probably a little bit off the script and just go say that I've just been trying to make sure my fire don't burn me up. (laughs)
6: Uh Uh-huh.
4: and I got, a, I got a fire for our people.
6: Yes, sir. I got yeah. a
4: fire for our community. Yes, sir. I understand. Uh, I, I think I understand well enough the the politics of change. Um, my my greatest focus is studying people and trying to understand people, so I can do as much as I can as a servant to people to help. I started as a grassroots or community organizer with the hope that I could actually be a part of an effort to. You know, 20 years ago, I started with a dream that we could recreate Black Wall Street in Detroit. Yes, sir. And now I see people talking about it everywhere. So I honestly is just a young man who just want to see change with the people around me. I got a burning fire. I had a great education. And at one point, I realized that I can probably do anything and be successful. And I could go sell myself, my talent, my ability, my time to somebody and probably go make a lot of money. But... I want, to, I want to leave a legacy, you know, this life that my, my child, my family could be proud of. And, yes, it, and it got to be something more than just cash. So I dedicated my life to serving our community. And I got to say, it didn't start being a CEO of Forgotten Harvest. You <laughs> know what I'm saying? It didn't start being a CEO of nothing. except so this dream I had, and I was always a CEO of that dream. And I never stopped being a CEO. And I've always been... Putting my fire into the place where I felt like I could add the most value to the moment in the conversation, and it's turned out that that service has put has positioned me in a place where I've been able to actually be in front of a conversation or in front of a group and uh, be considered as somebody to be able to be, you know, to follow into into the fire. You know, before I was at Forgotten Harvest, my job was as the the grass top leader for a, a a hard hit community in Detroit called Brightmoor, mm. and you know, I applied the same kind of fire towards community development and made some change and made some problems. Yes. For folks yes. In, in, you know what I'm saying? And that got me a, a role that I was pulled into the mayor's office as the deputy for economic development. And I think what happened was the powers that be, whatever you want to call it, the the, the cross-section of our community in the business world. Got a chance to see my my light shining in a lot of different ways as they were looking for the person to, to fulfill the role of Forgotten Harvest. Um it wasn't something I saw in my future, but when I really understood what it could be, I sat down in the interview and I gave them everything I had. Yes sir. And I've been doing that for the last seven years um to try to do that through you know this role to do the most I can to continue to change our community, man. I wish I could tell you a game plan to get here, but I was just, I just been trying to do as much as I can to give back to my people. Well, I'm going to
6: tell you, I'm going to tell you a game plan, you know, it's like a lot of people, cause you're a grinder. I call you grinders. People that just put their head down and they, like I was I always tell people when I look back on my life, I've been doing what I'm doing today since I was 18 years old, uplifting, you know, stepping beyond the word ask. I just did it. Uh, seeing a problem and creating a resolution. And yes, I did rub people the wrong way, but it was always, but I walked away with respect. The thing about it, when you hear the word rubbing people the wrong way, these are people who don't want change. And change is usually tied to putting forth effort. And when you ask people to put forth effort, that means they have to think about the resolution or the new concept. And that creates resistance. And that's when you get bumped. And so when you create resistance, that means you have to have a plan in place. And that's what he does. See, he doesn't create resistance without a plan. And so while people over there with their lips stuck out, He's over. There, he's over there telling people this is how it can be operated or uh, executed, and then they then they calm down and they have to come to the table at least listen to you, and yeah. while they're listening, then you have their attention and their ear, and we can move forward.
4: That is who Kurt made it. Base is
6: he yeah, may not want that's, to say that. One of the
4: peace. huh? That's one of the peace. If you don't agree, yes. and i really believe that this is the thing. Yes, I build it myself. There you go. There you go. If people like jumping on bandwagon. Yeah. You might have been the one at the table and said, "No, nah, no, nah, but if and I'm like, look, let's see. Yes. And if you don't want to, if you don't want to jump down this road and see with me, I'm gonna go do as much as I can. I got enough capacity to build it. So that this wagon is wobbling. And I'm going to get somebody else to fix that wheel. But you're going to see <laughs> by action if you don't believe by word. And that's what really is my hidden, I think, jewel. I can do it if
5: that, you don't want to see There we go.
4: See, see I, I finally got the real Kirk to pop out in this interview. You Did you, you say he moved
6: forward? He started pointing at me. He started telling me, if you don't do it, I'll get the nail and the hammer and the saw. Yeah. I'll build it myself. And that's yeah. really what... Why are you the CEO? That's all, I, that's all I was asking. Because sometimes along the way, it's your passion, your desire to you get out of the way and function as a, as a leader. is why we're here today. We're talking about you know, Kirk Mays in 1990, Forgotten Harvest was, was founded, is dedicated to relieving hunger and preventing uh, food waste. And for, they deliver 138,000 pounds per day five days a week to families in need. And recently, uh, I shouldn't say recently, within this past year, you guys received a $25 million grant from philanthropist Mackenzie Scott. Walk us through that process
4: and where, where, how would the money be used at Forgotten Harvest? Well, first, it was a, it's an absolute blessing. Right? So um, what many people may not realize is there was no process for us. This was literally an angel that dropped million on our lap. And when I found out, it was a call. Like, literally, the decision was already made. And it was like one of, it was an email that I could have missed. And it was just like, hey, uh, you got a woman that wants to talk to you tomorrow about a gift. And I've gotten anonymous gifts before. So I get on the phone and she's like, is this Kirk May? I'm like, yeah. It's like, Mr. Mays, this conversation has to be confidential. I'm like, okay, No problem. And she says, uh, do you know who uh, Mackenzie Scott is? I'm like, no, nah, I don't. And she's like, well, she's an author and this, that, and the other. And she didn't tell me about her affiliation with Mr. Bezos nothing like that. And then she's like, well, Mr. Mays, uh, we've done a, our research and we've heard about you. So we want to give you a gift. We're going to give you $25 million. I was like, what?
6: Okay, I, okay. Uh, hey, 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 Kurt, let's back that up because numbers, <clears throat> see, 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 you, you, you know, math. you've heard numbers, you know, we, we've heard $20, $100. When somebody says $25 million to you uh, over the phone with the word give, where were you at mentally? I was, I was, I was kind of dumbfounded because
4: it stopped me because one, I don't think it's, ridiculous to say that's the biggest gift I've ever gotten. It's the biggest gift the organization's ever gotten. Mm-hmm. Um you know it's it, you don't understand getting something when you didn't go through the process and ask for it or anything like that. You know what I'm saying? The Even hustle. Mm-hmm. If somebody came up to you and knocked on your door and say hey, you just won the lottery. Here's a hundred million dollars you kind of be suspicious that you didn't buy that ticket.
7: Right. <laughs> <laughs>
4: At that point I was like man, are you for real? What 25 million dollars? And I, I immediately, I had to, to admit, I immediately picked up my phone. I was like, Mackenzie Scott, who is this? Right. And the first thing that came up was Mackenzie Scott valued at $60 billion. Right. Mm-hmm. I put the phone down. I was like, well, tell me more. Right. <laughs> and what she told us was they have been, she has been going through a process to give away all her, her cash. And what she's doing is she's going through and doing her own assessment of organizations. And based off of leadership, based off a of track record, based off of impact, there are certain areas that she actually um, is focused on. And we were one of 6,000 plus organizations that got scrutinized. That got boiled down to 384 that got a gift. It wow. was an absolute honor. One of seven in the state of Michigan. Um, and I, I got to say one, of few brothers yes. in the work yes. uh, out of all food organizations in, in feeding America, there's 200 plus food organizations that feed in America, mm-hmm. only 45 got to get mm-hmm. right. So it was, it was quite a, it was quite a head jerking moment because you got to understand I'm in the middle of the, we're in the middle of this pandemic. Yes, sir. We, we have a vision for the future that got interrupted because we had to turn to the community to help doing everything we're doing. We have a vision that involves us building a brand new facility to really change the way that we systemically actually serve the community. Mm -hmm. And with everything going on, it's like, how are we gonna do all of this? How are we gonna do all of this in this moment? And that gift was like the, it was more than just help right now. It was, verification and validation that every decision I made up to now was right. That fire.
6: That fire was burning for the right reasons.
4: It's the best award I've ever gotten. And not not just because of the money. It's the gesture. Yes. The gesture. You know what I'm saying? It was backed up by a magnificent (laughs) dollar amount. Yes. That right now what we're doing is you know, you ask how are we going to spend the money? Yes, sir. We know That starts with conceptually understanding how we look at it. And if I can break that down, try to do it in a short way. Mm -hmm. First and foremost, um, the effort we're in right now to transform how we deliver food to the community is inherent that we have to have a new facility. Yes, sir. Forgotten Harvest going out and getting food every day from food providers, but also food coming in. From um, the gross, like from uh, bulk and commodity providers, we don't really have a capability inside of our existing warehouse to mix all of that so that everybody can get what I would call an equitable mix of everything we get on a daily basis. Those, those route drivers go out and actually uh, pick up from each of those grocery stores and they just give to like the three or four community partners on their route.
6: Right.
4: What, I, what, what are we gonna do in the future? is we're going to bring everything from every grocery store that we touch, all the farms, all the manufacturers. We're going to use the processes we have with our volunteers to actually mix all of that stuff so that there's not a line somewhere on the east side of town that only got from those couple Kroger's a couple Meijer or a couple um, grocery stores. And there's another line over here that's just getting from the farms. We yes. want everybody to get as much as possible because the nature of food rescue is, we don't really know what we're going to get on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. But we get so much that if we mix it all, mm-hmm. people will be mm-hmm. able to make the right decisions to be able to get the meals they need so they can go home and, make, and solve the problem of food insecurity. And I got to talk about that. Food insecurity for us is a person or a family not knowing where their next meal, the future meal is coming from. Mm-hmm. And anxiety that comes from that is that simple. So I use that to hold us, myself and our organization accountable. How do we address that definition? And broken into that is knowledge access, proximity, and then supply. So the way that translates into the way that, that Forgotten Harvest is going to actually transform or address that from a systemic level is we got to change our communication. Yes, We've also been looking at and analyzing the distribution territory that we're working in, and we've actually created a data systems to help us understand and qualify, but also quantify what food insecurity actually looks like in our community. Mm-hmm. We're collecting data from our community community um, Uh, members that are getting the food so that we can actually now have firsthand information about where people are coming from, what some of their health mechanisms are, where some of their particular cultural um, preferences may be, and how we can potentially bring food closer to the actual places where people are actually in need instead of just focusing on the places where people are picking up the food. So when we look look at this combination of being able to change the way we move plus being able to change the way we think as an organization, Forgotten Harvest is actually transforming into a thinking and data-driven organization. And the new facility is actually going to actually help enable us to make that turn. That's already the plan in place. (laughs) That's already what I was doing, right? right? And we're already raising the money for that. We already got cash coming in for that. And then we get this magnificent gift from Ms. Scott in the middle of all this. And my board is like, now what? I'm like, well, yo, we're already going deep. So now the question is, how do we go wide? Yes. So there are now there's some additional questions that we have about whether the throughput of the distribution um, uh, outlets that we give the food to are actually adequate um, in their capacity in order to actually serve the community. One of the largest challenges in and people being able to get the food that they need is being able to get to the place where it is in time. So if like I said, back to that example I had earlier, if grandma can only come to the church on yes. Wednesday from two to four to be able to get food out? What about the working family mm-hmm. that can't actually get there? Mm-hmm. So what, what we would like to see is a distribution network that has something closer to, to retail hours. Mm-hmm. I'd like to eliminate the line.
1: Yes, and the way that I
4: think that we can eliminate that line that, that wraps around the corner is that we need to have places that look a lot more like grocery stores, that have hours that are a lot more like a retail establishment, but still give food away for free but mm. still has an actual high-quality staff working in there treating people with dignity and like their customers. Yes, that sir. people come in there and they go get their food and they go home and they go home with enough variety and enough volume so they can fix that problem and thereby not have to worry about where their next meal, future meal is coming from. So everything that we do going forward with Forgotten Harvest is going to actually help us actually uh, widen our ability to affect the, the need that we're addressing and the next step, I believe, is when we move out of the building we're in, which is about 30,000 square feet, and move into our 77,000 square foot facility, I want to turn this old facility into, the grocery into store. a community care center yes, sir. that not only allows people to come in and shop mm-hmm. at, their, at their regular pace mm-hmm. like they would if they went to any grocery store, but check out for free. And before you leave, there's going to be offices in here where some of our community partners, we don't do this but we can invite partners in to work on mental health services, housing, get your water cut on, Mm -hmm. get get, get the lights cut on. Mm -hmm. I want to bring our partners in to do that. So that'll be one facility to come, um, you know, immediately. And And then we can talk about other ways to expand. But brother, as you may already know, um, everybody can't, have, can't really absorb the whole vision all at once. So I just give it out there. Well, like well, one well, piece well, you no time, curve. we move to the next stage, and then we can see the other horizon. We can see the horizon differently once we get down the road. So that's what it looks like in the short term. In the midst of all of that, we got some cash management to do to make sure we stay in our position of strength. And mm-hmm. I'm going to continue to just beat the streets. And I love to talk to our community, so I'm going to continue to beat the streets, <laughs> make sure I got the approval uh-huh. and the sanction from our community uh-huh. as
6: we make this turn. Well, Kirk, I'm going to just tell you this, man. Thank you for coming on the show. That fire, I got the I got to, I got, it warmed me. Okay. It warmed me. Okay. So I know it's, it's, it's it's out there warming a lot of people and changing lives, man. And definitely, uh, uh, I want to come up there and visit you in Detroit, Detroit's one of my favorite cities and, and, and see that 33,000 uh, square foot facility and you're going to move to the eventual 77,000 square foot facility. And I think you're absolutely right. Repurposing that old facility into a care center. A, a, a life center, I think that's basically what you're saying, where you can you can be educated and nourished not from, from your body and your head. And that's what we need yeah. in these diverse communities that are being underserved. Again, Forgotten Harvest, he is the CEO. I know how he got there. I just had to let you guys hear how he got there and let him drop that humble veil and tell us his story on Money Making Conversations. Thank you, Kurt Mays. Thank you, sir.
1: We will be right back with more Money Making Conversations with your host, Rashawn McDonald.
0: Thank you
1: You are now tuned into the Money Making Conversations Minute of Inspiration with Rashawn McDonald.
6: Molly Music is a Grammy Award winning musician, songwriter, and producer. He is an artist first and foremost, but he will not be put in a box. He loves the freedom of creating amazing music, no matter whether it's gospel, R&B, hip-hop, or rock.
4: You open up the doors to be heard out by a different race and then it gets uncomfortable for Mm -hmm. me. Just because you start bringing out different issues. Mm -hmm. I recently traveled to Nashville to do some
3: songs. Songwriting with Chad, lead singer, Christian rock band, Unspoken. Mm -hmm. And it was a challenge for me, Mm -hmm. especially coming from soul background, gospel background. Mm -hmm. But I had to remember I have songs that have rock uh, feels for it. So, man, the spreading and the falling
4: of the genres is definitely good. I've been watching it happen in hip hop and other genres for a long time. And I'm glad that it's finally made it to gospel.
6: If you want to hear the full interview with Molly Music, it's available on moneymakingconversations.com.
1: Welcome back to Money-Making Conversations with your host, Rashawn McDonald.
6: Welcome to Money-Making Conversations. I am your host, Rashawn McDonald. Like I say every episode, it's time to stop reading other people's success stories and start writing your own. And when you talk about your passions, you talk about your gifts, lead with your gifts and don't let your age, friends, family or coworkers stop you from planning or living your dreams. My interviews is on Money Making Conversations with celebrities, CEOs, entrepreneurs and people I like to call industry decision makers. My next guest is Reggie Butler. Reggie is the founder and CEO of Performance Paradigm, LLC and executive education, human capital consultancy. His areas of expertise include high-performing High-performing team development, organizational change management, diversity, and inclusion, which is real important in these days. Since 2020, has become the forefront of all major corporations. Mm. Tone of employment and understanding their color and the way people speak should not be a differentiator. It should be treated as equal. Trainer development, workforce retention, strategies, emotional intelligence, and executive coaching. Reggie believes that human connection and understanding is the cornerstone of changing life and behavior. Mm -hmm. Reggie works in collaboration with executive leadership teams to develop and execute strategies to change organizational culture, build leadership, bench strength, and increase human capital effectiveness. Please welcome Mm -hmm. to Money Making Conversations, my man, Reggie Butler.
3: How you doing, Reggie? I'm doing well, man. Good to be with you today. You're doing some important work, and you got to keep doing what you're doing. We need you in this space to not stop or back down. <laughs> well, I can't back
6: down. If I bring individuals <laughs> on the, on the show like you, Reggie, so you can support what I'm trying to do. I hear you. Because you, I you. you know, uh, I you and I both are, li- are living a long life, and uh, and we wanna mm. live even longer life. But uh, somewhere along the line, as as people are put. Qualifiers. If you haven't done certain things at a certain age, then you're stuck. Mm. And, and, and and that's why I wanted to talk about initially with you because that's the whole part about uh, pushing beyond what you're capable of because people can limit it saying you you reached oh. your limit. Talk to us about that.
3: Yeah, so first of all, I, I, I just had this really strong belief that another person's perception of me shouldn't define where I go. And you gotta think about what that actually looks like in some spaces. Mm-hmm. There are people who wind up in careers or in positions only to find out later in their careers that's not what they wanted to yes. do, where they wanted to go, where they wanted to be, how they wanted to do it, because they were listening to somebody else's narrative that was based on someone else's perception of their value or their worth. So I, I spend time in this space um, trying to get the people to understand and see things they can't see for themselves. So they not only can explore, but reach whatever next is for them by choice.
6: We talk about the path of resistance. Sometimes we live our life through the path of least resistance, Reggie. Okay? And that means that, like you said earlier, we're in a relationship. We go deep like that. There are people in a relationship mm. they should be getting out of. Mm-hmm. And there are people who are at jobs they should be walking away from. But they stay there out of fear. They stay there because they don't want to hear somebody complaining. Or mm. they stay there because they don't want to hear somebody tell them that they of questionnaire decision-making, how in your coaching do you push people past that? Because you're like a, you're like a, a new modern-day therapist, you know. You're not putting <laughs> us on the couch. <laughs> uh,
4: Am well, I right? Part,
3: yeah, yeah, so, you know, Rashawn, so we, first of all, I got to get people to be honest with themselves. And right. I, I take people through, you know, a framework to help them understand uh, what their truth is about how they're seeing the world, what the truth of somebody else is, like managing their perspectives. And then the highest order I try to get people to is accepting what they need to accept in order to move forward and make a difference. So if I view that, if I look at that, there are some people that haven't accepted what they need to accept about themselves. Right. And one of the big things that people don't accept is that they are much better than anybody else says they are. Because we let people define who we are and what our so worth true. is. And I've put people into situations that say, let me show you not only what your worth is, but you be able to articulate that value. Not somebody else do that for you. And once a person starts to accept that, they also start to see those things that they know they have to move past. And that's that thing you're talking about, about resistance. Yes. Resistance comes at you. When you are solid and your confidence has no competition, you know that. Yes. When you are confident in yourself and your abilities, resistance goes around you. Mm -hmm. You go right
5: through
6: it.
3: But you got to get people to see
6: that. You got to get people to see that. Yeah. It's it's like, that's why a a ship has a point. You know, when it goes (laughs) through the water, you know, it it cuts through the resistance. That's what you're talking about, you know. And as it cuts through the resistance, it gets to its destination a lot faster. Now, you've had over 28 years, is what's in the bio, but I'm sure it's more years of experience (laughs) in delivering this transformative. Like I told you, I've been doing this since I was 18. When you really look at it, who you are, you don't really be defined by the moment. You're defined on how you were raised and who put these, uh, right. I'd say, these seeds in you. Who That's put right. these seeds in you? Let's let's take a journey back a little bit, Reggie. Who put yeah. these seeds in you?
3: Yeah, so if I look at, I'm going to start back. So I started off as a classically trained musician, so mm-hmm. classically trained pianist. And for years, um, I thought that that was my path. And my father, uh, who was military, I was raised military. I've never served, but uh, I was raised military in the discipline that he instilled in me about how to be successful through discipline and doing what's necessary, do what you have to do so you can do what you want to do. And he instilled that in me. Once I had made the decision with his help and the help of some other colleagues that a classically trained pianist in this body at that time in my life, there was a high probability I was not going to be as successful as I wanted to be because of the constructs of race around Mm -hmm. who I was. Mm -hmm. But my Mm -hmm. father looked at me and he says, but that doesn't mean you still can't be a musician.
5: Mm -hmm.
3: Mm -hmm. like, oh. And my mom, wonderful woman that she is, They created what I'm going to call some of the things you do. They decided to manage my life at the young age of 15. So Mm -hmm. I had a band. Mm -hmm. Here I am (laughs) having a band at 15 Uh, (laughs) and work and use that band plate every weekend, 11 p.m. to 2 Mm a.m., just doing all the things. But what it taught me. Was the organizational skills and the discipline of creating a team? Because mm-hmm. you know this about music. I'm, right. I, I, music is from my heart and from my soul, but it is the foundation of everything we do. Because that band would not be the band it is and was. The, mu- the music we created would not have landed the way it was supposed to if we didn't have structure. And I was leading that band. So from that, it took me all throughout my life, I used those tenets of what it means to create a high-performing team, what it means to lead a team, what it means to deal with dysfunction, what it means to deal with change when change, change comes up. And I've taken that all the way throughout my professional life. Wound up being, it's so interesting, I wound up uh, was, a, uh, was a choir director uh, at a church uh-huh, uh-huh. and one of my one of my uh, choir members said you realize you have a gift for speaking you should come <laughs> you should come you know not out of the church but you should come you know speak it in, in corporate america mm-hmm. I fought I resisted that forever because I, I was did. school teacher yeah.
5: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was a mm-hmm.
3: school teacher I had that means I had twelve months of pay and three months off. I was yeah. like I'm not messing up this formula mm-hmm. and then realized you know after I substitute Substituted as an ins- instructor, as a trainer, um, for this boutique uh, firm in Cincinnati, Ohio, called Global Lead Management Consulting at the time. I'll never forget it. I, I, I got a check <laughs> for that day of training that I did. Right, right, right. And I right. got it like three, four weeks later. I looked at it, and I gave it back. I was like, that's way too much money. That wasn't for me. <laughs> only, it's like, nah, do <laughs> right, I'm a right. teacher. Only to realize that what she was trying to introduce me to, which is what everyone has in their life, they have what's called insight humans, Mm -hmm. people that continue to give you insights for things you can't see for yourself. I wound up transitioning from being a school teacher into the corporate space and doing training and development. And at that firm, at that time, I ascended throughout that firm with some great mentors, Vincent Brown, Janet Reed, Sam Lynch, John Peoples, all the people that were back at that firm at that time trained me mm-hmm. mentored me mm-hmm. helped me develop mm-hmm. the skill that I have now now mm-hmm. that I use in my own uh, human capital consultancy so a lot of people along the way shaped me and I mm-hmm. tell this to people all the time never forget who shaped you right because you didn't get where you are by yourself and now you owe well you know the thing
6: about it I, I 100% agree that's why cuz you're a unique individual because you bet on yourself, and you can't really tell people how you generate income. You know, you can say it, mm-hmm. but they, but the average person can't put the. Mm-hmm. How does he make money? Does he have a nine to five? Does he work Monday through Friday? <laughs> when does he have off? Does he take vacation? Does he have insurance? So you are that individual that really steps out. You hear the word a lot on faith, and faith is tied to mm-hmm. your gifts. But I go back to when you were fifteen years old, and fifteen years old, and your parents managing you, they were shaping. The gift, because right. I know the power of music. Because I was, a, I played B flat uh, clarinet, I played tenor saxophone, so I knew that I know the power of music. Music yeah. is so incredible from from an intellectual and also from a discipline standpoint. And as mm-hmm. we see you today, I'm seeing that same discipline. I'm seeing that same skill set of live performances. I'm watching it right now that was just incubated into you at such an early age, now it's translating those gifts. And I see you, Reginald, and uh, I can call you Reginald, but I don't well, your parents, but it's Reggie Butler, <laughs> excuse me, for stepping out into that parent land. But I want to just say that in talking to you, how do you get people to understand their value? Because you're in a human capital. And yeah. sometimes... And I want to just say this real quick before we get this clear. We can blame a lot of issues on the company we work for. We can Mm. blame a lot of issues on race. We can blame a lot of issues on gender. But the core of making that change has to start with how we value ourselves.
3: That's right.
6: Talk to us about that.
3: Yeah, and um, so one of the frames I, I try to put people through, so there's two ways to look at it. One way is to look at your lived experiences and the comfort zone radius you have around your lived experience. So let's say you grew up in a dual family household, you, you went to college, you have all these lived experiences that shape who you are and give right. you the messages. Mm-hmm. That's that's only one version of a lived experience is we occupy and cohabitate a world with people that have very different lived experiences. And so how you find your value is you look at the comfort zone radius you have around your own life, your lived experiences, and you overlay that on the people that you need to interact with to get you to next or to be in service of somebody else. Right. And you look up, you step back one day and go, I, I actually have a purpose. Like, I'm supposed to be here in this space doing this thing right. because it serves something. I tell people all the time, always be in service of changing an outcome not in service of yourself. Some people uh, get um, bristle at that because they, they start to think of themselves as well that's just being selfish. I'm saying it, it's not about being selfish or not being selfish, but when you live through the lens of who are you helping? Right. what or what what condition are you improving you live a much you live a much richer life. And that's where you start to look back at yourself and say, now I know what my value proposition is. One thing I tell entrepreneurs all the time, <laughs> don't negotiate your price.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. And, I, and they go, but I, but I have to, because negotiation is part of the thing. It's like, every time you lead with negotiation, that doesn't mean you that means you don't know what you're worth. Right. Know what you're worth first and then negotiate from that. Mm-hmm. And negotiation from that could be, well then I must not be your person for today. There you go. Because you can't afford me. <laughs> But that's people have to. You have to get there first, mm-hmm. and it's not doesn't happen by accident. Mm-hmm. It's very intentional. And what I'm trying to get people to really understand, Rushan, and you of all people, I know you know this: that different people, because of their different life experiences, think there's only one or two ways to do things. Yes, that's just not true. Mm-hmm. There are multiple ways to get to certain locations. There's, it's not just one way, and you have to own this thing called change. Mm-hmm. And I, I even took, this most recently I've started doing it. I've created a, a module, again, using music, uh, that's called Find Your Rhythm. Right. And Find Your Rhythm it literally is about any change management principle and organizational designs and things like that. What people have to do is find their rhythm. Mm-hmm. So I want you to think about people who, because of the pandemic, mm-hmm. you know, there's three pandemics out there. There's mm-hmm. the health pandemic. Yes. There's a racial pandemic. Yes, it is. There's an economic pandemic. Yes, it is. And in the last 15 months, we've seen people have to deal with that that those pandemics, yes. and they've lost their rhythm. Mm-hmm. Now everybody's talking about, let's go back to work. Mm-hmm. And pe- going back to work, like how do you find your rhythm to get back into what I tell people to stop saying, which is the new normal. Right. <laughs> stop it. Right. Stop saying the new normal, because most of you didn't like the last normal. Right. Mm-hmm. And we're about to go, so you have to find your rhythm, and it's not return to work, it's return to life.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, and when how I, do you when deal I, with
6: that, man? How, you
3: know when I hear you say that, you know
6: I, I you know the, the thing that because I, I, I've been fortunate in my life. I work for the post office. I, you know, I work for IBM. So I've worked a forty-hour shift. I don't understand hourly wage. I understand how to work overtime, and in the process, individual and a personal job frustration because you deal with a lot of mm. individuals who live in that forty-hour week uh, structure. Because we're going to talk about uh, Google contracted you just recently to develop their own diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. Mm-hmm. I talk about that because when you come in and do a program like that, there has to be two sides of this development. There has to be an acknowledgement that just because of you feel that another person, I always, let me just share this quick story with you right quick when I was mm-hmm. at IBM. I, um, I got hired with two other white guys, and I came in simultaneously, and my supervisor asked me, what were my goal? What I want to do? And I told him I didn't know at the time, okay? He said, okay, whenever you figure it out, Rashawn, come back. and I'll come in. Just tell me no. My door's open. Well, two months went by. Three months went by. I still hadn't went back in that door. And the white guys started getting other assignments. And guess what? I started huddling up with my, hey, this is wrong. This is a racial thing going on here. Racial, what's going on here? And I went and storming in that office and sat down with my supervisor. Hey, man, look. We started at the same time. Why are yeah. they doing more than I'm doing? He said, Rashawn, I asked you on your first day, what were your goals? What did you want to do at this company? You told me you're going to get back with me. Well, they got back with me the their very first day. And they're only <laughs> doing the things that they I'm helping them do the things that they say they want to accomplish yeah. at the company. I yeah. say that to put that statement out in front of you to say, I'm not going to point any fingers on this, Reggie. I'm going to tell you, I've been the I want to say the person who sitting in the corner mad, but I didn't do my job. So right. uh, who am I mad at? So that now you have to come in with a company like Google, try to change yeah. the environment, but know there are some Ruchan sitting out there who yeah. hadn't told Google a darn thing about what they want to do. Correct? Yeah.
3: Yes. Yeah, and I will, I will tell you one of the things. So there are a lot of um c- companies in, in the portfolios, you know, all the way from big tech and Absolutely. healthcare and mm-hmm. retail and mm-hmm. you know, professional services, automotive, all the things. But here's here's what happens. When you have an organization that that's big like like a Google, they have the resources to actually investigate and use data to actually drive toward the source of what the issue is. Yes, they so do. they had a hypothesis that people that are black Latinx um, and women are having different lived experiences inside the organization. Mm-hmm. And instead of going to the mad Roshans, mm-hmm. yes. instead of going to the people <laughs> in the organization and trying to focus on making them feel better, they decided let's go to the manager population who mm-hmm. makes decisions about them every day mm-hmm. and get them to understand that the lived experiences aren't the same.
5: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: And it was, it's amazing when, a, when an organization understands that it's about shifting the culture, not changing the people. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. what I do at the firm. We actually work across change management, but we do it through the lens of culture. So if there's a, a people issue to address, we address it through the culture. We don't address it through the people. We address it through the culture. And sometimes the culture will, will dictate to us after we do some audit or something like that it's a, to find out where where is the issue, where is the problem, let's solve it. And so what we, what we wound up doing, which is why the Forbes article, we got highlighted, we, we created um, a very experiential program that was the, at the intersection of understanding the experience of, of black and brown people, yes. uh, of women, and anybody that was in an underrepresented group, and taking it through the lens of art. So we used performance artists. Mm-hmm. We used singers. We used musicians. We used drummers. We used interpretive dancers. Same type of diversity training that most people would say, so let's talk about what it's like to be black here right. at this organization, let's mm-hmm. talk about what it's like. Instead of just talking to them, we showed them. Right. We created an experience. Mm-hmm. So just think, you have a room of dominant culture people, mostly white, sitting there, trying to understand what it's like to be somebody that's not them, that doesn't have the lived experience they do, but the way they get the message is through, through art. Yes. So we had someone curate an art piece and explain yeah. why this piece of art was done, and the reason it was done, because this person feels invisible. And that's why this piece of art looks like that. We would then turn to the audience and say, is there anybody on your team that feels like they are invisible? And what's that reason? Can you do anything about it? It was so different. We took some survey results. This was one of, one of the most interesting things. You know how you do these uh, inclusion. So Every organization does surveys to see how their, pe- their, their people feel. And one of the questions was about inclusion. Do you feel like you feel included? And the score was, was pretty low. Right. We took some of the comments from the survey that said, this is what it feels like for me to be here. I don't feel like I'm seen, et cetera, et cetera. We took those comments, we strung them together, put a music bed under it, and then had dancers do interpretive dance to it mm-hmm. to show the emotion. Because as long as it's just data in one dimension, on a page, in a survey, in a spreadsheet, you can't feel that. So we created a story and a narrative that allowed people to feel. Right. That's the n- space we sit in, I am, t- Roshan, you know this, you can talk and complain all you want until you get somebody to feel, meaning connect the emotion with the intellect, you won't get change to happen.
6: You know, it, and you're absolutely correct. And because this is what this interview is about change, also about acceptance, also about recognizing, like you said, you're not invisible. And, and, and so, you know, being that I've I, I walked these different lanes of entertainment, you know, and you, uh, the corporate world, I've been mm-hmm. an entrepreneur, and then but that workspace—that's really the key mm. dynamic, especially mm. how w- working remotely. That's the that's the that's the other part of the conversation. Maybe we, you, you broke down <laughs> the three. That working remotely now also uh, leads to damage because of the fact that how do you how do you. Uh, properly supervise somebody who's working from home, how do you properly promote somebody who's working from home, which creates another angst, and am I mm-hmm. being treated right, am I going to get a proper recognition for the work I'm producing, your world has gotten even more complicated in a good that's way.
3: Right. That's right.
6: In a good way. That's right. With the remote tool that's suddenly been thrown into your little toolbox. <laughs>
3: yeah. Yeah, I've got, uh, I have no shortage of examples of people doing the on-ramp back into work. So you do realize, I I think everybody knows this. So a lot of companies actually experienced exponential growth over the last 15 months, and they hired a lot of people virtually, and they never met them. Yes! So they they have to deal with that. Mm -hmm. Then you have some companies that decided, hey, I didn't know this flexible work thing was actually going to work, and now that it's working, I don't need them to come back. I need them to stay home. Right. Okay. So mm-hmm. now you got that population. Mm-hmm. Then you have the what we're, everybody's saying is the hybrid population. Where you're on rotation it comes to come into the building, but you only have to come in for two days, and you have to rotate with somebody else. Mm-hmm. Now you got a manager who's never, ever had to do that before. Mm-hmm. They don't know how to do that, and they are ill equipped. They are they are well intended though because they are trying. And what we try to do is put some framing around to say just the just all of the different versions and iterations you're going to have to go through do not look for a new normal soon because it's a phased approach yes it is you still have to create human connection and you have mm-hmm. to do it through screens right i am going to give you i'm gonna give you a tip i told a manager the other day i said when you everybody's back you've been doing all these things would you stop Asking people on Mondays how their weekend was. Right. That is not (laughs) inclusive. He goes, what are you talking about? I said, think about the pandemic, all of them. Right. Do you realize that some people, the last thing they want to talk about what they had to deal with on the weekend. Right. Mm-hmm. I lost somebody to COVID. I'm going mm-hmm. through yes. a divorce. Yes. My friends are out mm-hmm. of jobs. I'm mm-hmm. still trying my still doing Zoom school. Mm-hmm. But I hear some of my colleagues on the call when you ask, What did you do over the weekend? They say, Oh, I was able to go hiking. I feel so much better now. It's mm-hmm. like that's not my experience. Right, right. So right. right. I'm right. telling managers now, right. pay attention to the questions you ask. A mm-hmm. much better question is mm-hmm. not how was your weekend. A better question as a leader right now is to say, what's important to you this week and how can I help? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also,
6: what's important, how are you doing? That's, That's right. important, too, because what happens is the interesting thing about the work di- and the home dynamic, Reggie, as we wrap this up, is that you got kids. You might have a wife running around in the background. You might have a mm-hmm. dog barking. You might, you know, an electrician might show up at the same time that you're meeting, going on with your Zoom call. It's bringing on a whole slew of dynamics that can make you look unprofessional, which can in turn impact how you think you're being perceived by the Mm. company that's hiring you. So when you lay out these shields and when you when you get hired by a company (laughs) like Google, like I said, they brought you in. You use these big old words, diversity, training, equity, inclusion. That's a lot to put on your plate. How do you how do you. Not replicate because every every situation is different. I always say that. Like every fintech, yep. health companies, you 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 don't bring the same model in. How do you bring a model in, and how do you survey the right approach to that particular company's needs?
3: Well, some of it is is most companies already have identified what the problem is. They're still working on the source, so we try to go in and say, I don't need you to do new work with me. I don't need you to go look up stuff that you've already looked up. I need to start where you are, in which I try to get. Um, you know, companies, businesses, people's, individuals start where you are, not where you were. Right. And way too many people going. Well, let's go back and let's study the past, so we can figure out how to deal with now. And I'm going. Can we start with now and focus on the future? <laughs> yes. Think about that. The past already happened. Yes. You have so much data, so much surveys. How much data do you need Mm -hmm. to know that things are just a little messed up? Yes, yes, yes. And that there is an answer. Let's go with what we know and move forward. I tell people all the time, create forward momentum. If you're not creating forward momentum, you're holding things back. Answer the question every single day. What did I do this this week that created traction and momentum? I I call it the relevancy paradigm. You spend a lot of energy on a lot of stuff. You do a lot of actions. If it's not having any impact and you're not creating any momentum, then make the business choice and the human choice to stop focusing energy on it. Focus on where you create momentum. Yes, sir. You stand in
6: there. And is engaging me so much. But you probably know that yourself. You know, we I, I've never interviewed anybody standing. That is so important. It's so powerful. Because I feel like you're communicating with me. I feel like that if you extended your hand right now, Reggie, I would probably, I'll probably stand my hands trying to shake it because it feels so natural. You feel me? So yep. if, if, if you're doing it like this. Keep doing it like this. This is fantastic. You're a very man. welcoming personality. you fill with a world of, a world of information. I will be the first to laugh for whatever you do. Send me your flyers. Send me all your information so I can put it on okay. my social media. And let's keep building your brand and also changing lives. Because that's what you're doing. You're changing yeah. lives for black and brown people. We
3: good? We good, man. And you keep doing what you're doing. I'm telling you, what you do matters. I know you may not get that a lot, but I'm telling you, it does work. I don't, ca- I don't care what people <laughs> say. I don't care if you don't get the accolades you think you deserve. Yes, sir. You are making a difference. We need you to be you in this space. And I will so be. So I thank you, thank you for everything. Baby.
6: And I thank you for coming on Money Making Conversation. If you want to see this interview or hear this interview on Money Making Conversation, please go to MoneyMakingConversation.com. Money-making I'm Rashawn McDonald. I am Minute of your
1: inspiration host. With McDonald. We will I be right sat down with, with the legendary actor. He is the founder host, of Duke Rashawn Media McDonald.
6: Foundation and Unite Network. He was on the show to discuss his starring role in Steven Soderbergh's new crime drama, No Sudden Moves, available on
3: HBO Max. If you were black, you had to be able to play chess in the chess game. So Mm -hmm. if they had negotiators with them, you have to negotiate. Mm -hmm. If the negotiations didn't go well and they had guns, you had to have guns. Yes. So,
5: you know, you, you could not negotiate with someone who felt you were weak and unprepared the only way you could negotiate with them is to look them in the eye and they understood the consequences of disrespecting so i play the head of the black
3: gang, Mm -hmm. and um, we negotiate over some issues. If you want to hear the full
6: interview with Bill Duke, it's available on MoneyMakingConversations.com.
4: Definitely good. I've been watching it happen in hip-hop and other genres for a long time, and I'm glad that it's finally
3: made it to gospel.
0: If you want to hear the full interview
6: with Molly Music, it's available on MoneyMakingConversations.com.
0: In this season of giving, Kohl's has gifts for all your loved ones.
3: Forced Metaphors,
5: presented by Progressive Bundle and protect today Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates Discount not available in all states or situations
3: The Black Effect Presents Features honest conversations and exclusive interviews A space for artists,
4: everyday people, and listeners To amplify, elevate, and empower black voices With great conversations Make sure to listen to the Black Effect Presents podcast On iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts Podcasts